I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week we discuss tissue engineering, how we can make new body parts to replace ones that have failed. The cells from the recipient recognise that there is a scaffold there without any cells in it, and the cells will move in to the scaffold and regenerate it, which means that the recipient then has essentially a living tissue which can grow and repair itself and will essentially become a part of them. And we look at the health or otherwise of Britain's science-based businesses. I actually think that they're improving quite dramatically. Uh, Let me give you one example, and that is the one missing key ingredient that Britain was lacking for a long time, which is the management talent. And here is a data point with our first fund, the Damadeus One. We did 17% of our deals with serial entrepreneurs. This has now risen to 70. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Our regular guest, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the Science Council, is in the studio with me. And our special guest this week is Eileen Ingham, Professor of Medical Immunology at Leeds University and one of Britain's leading researchers in tissue engineering. Eileen is also a founder of a promising biotech startup company called Tissue Regenics. She's joining us on the phone from Leeds. Tissue engineering, and even more so regenerative medicine, are broad fields involving many scientists, both in academic centres and in industry. So tell us about the approach that you particularly have been taking, Eileen. What we have done is develop a technology for taking human or animal tissue and treating it to remove the living cells and cell remnants. And this produces a biological scaffold And this implanted into patients will not be rejected because the cells have been removed. So what is the scaffold actually made of at this point when you've removed the cells? Well, if we think about any tissue, connective tissue in the body, like a ligament or a heart valve, then they're composed of two elements. Firstly, the cells, and secondly, the extracellular matrix or scaffold which surrounds them. The cells are the components which cause immunological rejection, but the scaffold is more or less the same between different people and humans and other animals such as mammals like pigs. And so by removing the cells, you leave the extracellular matrix. You've been working particularly, I think, on heart valves. Now, people will be familiar with the idea of taking a heart valve from an animal, a pig or a cow, and putting it into a person. So what's different about your approach? Traditionally, pig heart valves have been used in human surgery. However, if you took a pig heart valve straight from the animal without any treatment and implanted it, 
it would be very rapidly rejected by the immune system. And so the companies that produce what we call bioprosthetic heart valves, they take the pig heart valve tissue and they treat it with chemical fixatives. What that does is it masks the antigenic components of the cells within the tissue so it's not rejected. But what it also does is it kills the tissue. So the bioprosthetic heart valves that are currently used made of pig tissue are essentially made of dead tissue. And they function perfectly well, but they have no capacity for repair and regeneration. And your material will absorb or encourage the growth of the patient's own stem cells through the scaffold? Is that the essential difference? So it'll be a living heart valve? Yes, what we have found through studies that we have done preclinically is that when we implant the acellular heart valve tissue, then over time it gradually regenerates with cells from the recipient. So the cells from the recipient recognize that there is a scaffold there without any cells in it, and the cells will move in to the scaffold and regenerate it, which means that the recipient then has essentially a living tissue which can grow and repair itself and will essentially become a part of them. Eileen, are there other areas you're working on? For example, wound healing is one of the areas that's often mentioned in patient press about the possibilities this technique might have. Is that something that you're also looking at? That's something that we've not been directly involved in here through our academic research. However, we've licensed our underpinning technology to the National Health Service Blood and Transplant Tissue Services here in the UK. And they have been applying our technology to human dermis. And currently they they have that in clinical trial for some wound healing applications. You lead a team of 100 scientists, I understand. How many different disciplines have been involved in your research? It seems to be one of the ones that young women are interested in combining sort of engineering and science in this way. The team of 100 scientists, I should point out, are not all involved in researching biological scaffolds. In my research group, over 50% of the scientists who work with me are females, and they are particularly attracted by, well, two aspects of our work. One is the multidisciplinary nature so that they can gain experience in the biology, also in the engineering, and also contact with clinicians because we work closely with people from the NHS. And also, I think another attractive feature of our work is the translational aspect of it. Eileen, we'll talk about your company, Tissurogenics, in a moment, but let's hear first from someone who has helped to set up more than 100 science and technology-based businesses, the serial entrepreneur Herman Hauser of Amadeus Capital Partners. Britain's coalition government has given science-based businesses a boost by pledging £200 million for a series of Technology and Innovation Centres, or TICs, to help universities exploit their research. 
which was taking up a recommendation that Herman had made in a report to the outgoing Labour government. I caught up with him at a recent meeting about scientific entrepreneurship at the Royal Society, and I asked him first whether the climate for creating new businesses was getting better. Well, being a perennial optimist, I actually think that things uh, are improving. And I actually think that they're improving quite dramatically. Uh, Let me give you one example, and that is the one missing key ingredient that Britain was lacking for a long time, which is the management talent. We never had any problems with technology. We had a problem with the quality of management of high technology. And here is a data point with our first fund, the Damadeus One. We did 17% of our deals with serial entrepreneurs. This has now risen to 70. So we've grown our own serial entrepreneurial class in the UK that we can build on and For the first time, we can also attract global management talent now because we've had a number of billion-dollar successes. One new ingredient, which follows a report you wrote for the last Labour government just before it left office and which has been adopted by the new Conservative Lib Dem coalition, are these TICs, Technology Innovation Centres. Tell us about those. These are intermediate institutions between the university and industry, between the university and startups. They're roughly modelled after the Fraunhofer Gesellschaft in Germany, of which there are 60 different Fraunhofer Institutes. They started with one after the war, so on average they've created one new one over the last 60 years. They now have a combined turnover of 1.3 billion euros, and I have recommended and it has been accepted to adopt the same funding model uh, that has been so successful at the Fraunhofer Institutes, which is a third of the money comes from government. Another third comes from industry, and we shouldn't do this without industry support because one of the advantages is that industry has a stake in this and determines also the particular direction an institute is going. And the last third comes from specific projects that are EU projects or government projects. The UK government's putting in £200 million. Is that going to be enough to make a difference? No, it isn't long-term, but it's an excellent start because the Fraunhofer didn't start with 1.3 billion. It started with the first institute, and uh, 200 million will be enough to get the first six or so, six to eight uh, going. And we have the first with uh, advanced manufacturing already up and running. The second one on cell therapy is just being uh, selected, and there is a third one on offshore energy production that we've just had a call on. Lastly, if we look at different sectors of science and technology, which would you say are Britain's particular strong points and which are are the weak points? We do have, of course, tremendous strengths in ICT in a number of computer science areas. Uh, I mean, a good example, of course, is uh, autonomy that came out of uh, uh, all the Bayesian arithmetic probability uh, research that was done actually not so much in the computer science department but the engineering department uh, of Cambridge University and then we've got this terrific strength in life sciences. Eileen you're part of the terrific strengths in life sciences tell us how you found the process of setting up your spin-out company to Eugenics. It wasn't directly me that found a process for setting up the spin-out company What happened was, during the years between 2001 and 2006, we had filed 
three different patents on the technology. And those patents were being supported by the university via their commercialization department. And as those patents extended to more and more territories, of course, the cost for upkeeping those patents was becoming quite expensive. And so the university commercialization people decided to take a look at the technology more closely to make a decision as to whether or not it was commercializable, either by licensing or by the formation of a spin-out company. And they brought in two external people to look closely at the technology and the potential markets. And those two independent advisors came back with the advice that it would be best if the university went ahead and formed a spin-out company to try and commercialise the technology. Eileen, do you actually enjoy the business side of the enterprise? I enjoy my connection with it as it is now. During the initial year of, say, May 2006 through to about May 2007, when we only had a very small amount of money and the company employed just two scientists. And there was myself and the other academic inventor, John Fisher, who's an engineer, and we were trying to get things going. Then I found it very, very challenging, largely because, obviously, the development of a company, thinking about things like manufacturing and regulatory issues, was something that I had no expertise in at the time. Do you think in retrospect that the managerial skills that you could call on and the financing available were what you'd expect for a company with this promising technology? Yes, I think so. I think that the initial seed corn investment that we received was just enough to get things going to a stage where the company could put together a convincing business plan and and really show the potential of the technology and that then enabled the company to raise over three million private funding just over a year later. One of the things you hear all the time is that many scientists, individual inventive scientists, are doing this for the first time pretty well in small groups and that what's attractive about Herman Hauser's proposal is that this will pool some resource and pool some thinking so that maybe more can be taken off the shoulders of people like you. I agree with that totally. However, in retrospect, looking at my experience, once we'd got the private round funding, it was, from my perspective, quite plain sailing because the money was used very wisely to bring in people with the appropriate expertise. Do you think about the money you might make now? No, I see this very much from the perspective of my research being successfully translated. I mean, the reason I was involved in the research at the outset was to improve tissue transplants so that they could be used in patients and for patient benefit. And I find it extremely gratifying to see that all the effort is now being translated and patients are actually benefiting from the technology that we've developed. I'm just going to wish you the very best of luck, both with the company and your academic research. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Please join me again for another fascinating look at the world of science next week. Many, many thanks to Eileen Ingham and Diana Garnham for joining me today.
and thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.